ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello, welcome to another Books of the Year podcast. Thank you for downloading uh, this um, hour of tape, which has appeared in your cassette player. Yes, loving loving the tape and cassette references. Yeah, Yeah. well, I think that's what I think it's kind of that, isn't it? It This is is a C180, which you've just put in your Walkman. Yes. And uh, you have those little headphones with a little yellow foam yeah yeah c180s always broke though didn't they always snapped the yeah well half, halfway through this chat it will get all stretched <laughs> yes and you'll have to pull out the tape and, and unwind biro into yeah. the little wiggly bits yeah uh don't forget you can get in touch with us books of the year at yahoo.com drew stone says matt and simon thanks for the pod always entertaining and interesting however i do have a bone to pick with you since this whole there's a new episode every week business i've started buying more and more books i've piles of the things building up around my house i'm buying faster than i'm reading please tell me your next guest will be really dull and that the book won't be worth reading so i can spare my surface space and my wallet uh, drew in padstow well i'm afraid i'm going to i mean i can pretend to, that david mccloskey is going to be really dull but given that he used to be a cia analyst i suspect he probably won't be yes unlucky uh, a tweet from hugh fullerton uh, who is commissioning editor at the radio Times. Uh, having heard your episode with Linwood Barclay uh, and his new book being described as Jurassic Park, but with cars, yes. which was his description, which was excellent. Surely someone has thought of Jurassic Parking. That would have been. Sh- very I mean, good. yes, that's why you, where you are, where you are, Hugh. Clearly, that's right. Uh, thank you, thank you, Hugh. And if you want to have Matt and I as uh, cover yes, artists, cover stars, yeah, then uh, can, yeah. you know you have an open invitation. And Malcolm Preen on Twitter just finished reading Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, oh, yeah. as reviewed on your fabulous pod. It's the best book I've read in ages. I really, really, emphasis mm. on the second, really enjoyed it. I'm excited to hear news of the film adaptation of this one. That's going back a couple, That's a you know, like a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. You can tweet us at, at Books of the Year and Instagram. At Pick Any Page. That's the one. That is, yeah, for the grammars. Anyway. On with a guest who will not be dull, but if you're Drew in Padstow, maybe a little. Okay, so uh, our Books of the Year guest, delighted to say, I think live from Texas, uh, David McCloskey joins us, the author of Damascus Station. Hello, David, how are you? Hey, doing well. Happy to be here. Well, Excited to talk. Is it like half past six in the morning? 
It is. It is half past six. I'm an early riser though, so I have uh, I've been up for about an hour and a half already on most wow. days. So I'm wow. I'm in the flow. Yeah. So I'm just. This is for Matt. How can you be a former CIA best now best selling writer? Yeah. Being up for that amount of time and still look still be that handsome. Yes. It's just not on, is it? <laughs> you know? It really isn't. No. Because if you were cast in a in a movie yeah. playing, for example, Sam Joseph, the star of your novel, he would say, "No one in the CIA is that." No, attractive. they're not. No. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so it's, anyway, so Damascus Station uh, is the book. Before we go any further, Matt, describe the cover, please. This is the the UK paperback. This is old news for David because I think it came out like October twenty one in America. That's so right. David's probably forgotten every single word of this book. <laughs> yes, but um, <laughs> intentionally. So. Yes. So Matt, describe the cover. So uh, well, what we have here is, and it's a shout out spy novel. Uh, the front cover because you've got a shadowy figure in the bottom left hand corner, and he stood in a courtyard in, well, what will obviously be uh, Damascus in Syria. And it's sort of black and white tiling we can see and archways and uh, and the tower behind it. And then David's name in gold with Damascus Station in white. And there are some, some great testimonials on the front there of this. Are. The one I am going to pick is the obvious one, which is the best spy novel I have ever read, General David Petraeus, former head of the CIA. And that's not bad, is it? I mean, if you're going to have a testimonial on your front cover, that's not bad. So, uh, David, first question, uh, McCloskey, is that Scottish in origin way back when? It's, I believe it's Irish, Irish in origin. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that the family goes back on my dad's side to, to somewhere outside Donegal. Uh, but I am not... Uh, not an expert on that history by, no, by no, any that's means. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so you've described this book as a CIA uh, procedural. So we'll get we'll get to the novel itself in just a moment. But I think it would help if if you could just introduce us to yourself, uh, because you were a senior analyst uh, in the CIA. Just tell us what we need to know about your background and your history before we talk about this book. Yeah, so I uh, I joined the CIA pretty young I, as an analyst. I actually took my first polygraph at 19. I got recruited out of uh, undergraduate to join and um, worked on Syria pretty much the whole time I was there uh, in different in different kind of forms and formats. But but as an analyst, I was in Damascus for a while before the, the Arab Spring began uh, and ended up really having a front row seat to that country, going from you know relatively stable, I guess, authoritarian system to, you know, the kind of sad, tragic uh, situation that we find ourselves in today. And, uh, you know, the book really came out of that experience. Yeah. In a but, lot what, of why, but why did they recruit you? What was it about you, David, that they that they wanted? What skills did you bring? What, what, what do you need? If you're going to be a senior analyst on Syria, you must have had Syrian history, you must have had language, geography skills that they were after. Well, I think the way I like to think about it is the CIA kind of goes after two types, right? They go after um, young, fresh-faced, impressionable uh, college students, right, who they can kind of uh, mold, right, and and shape and, and, and help them grow and learn into the job. And then they go after, you know, experts who have deep, uh, you know, have, who have done PhDs on Russian air defense systems and have you know, have, have some kind of very specific type of expertise and perhaps a PhD as well. I was very much in that former camp of just a, um, you know, pretty generalist undergraduate student who wanted to learn how the world works, who wanted to see the world, and, you know, importantly, was able to pass a pass a polygraph examination. And 
they really do go after and, and recruit both types for all kinds of work at the agency. And you were part of the team that advised President Obama on what he needed to know about Syria. Is that correct? I wrote, yes, I, I was on the Syria team at the CIA at the time that was doing a lot of the writing and briefing for Obama and his foreign policy team uh, as the crisis unfolded. That's correct. So we're skipping a bit here, but the process by which you end up leaving the CIA and writing a novel, um, why did both of those things happen? <laughs> well, so I'll start with the CIA point. So I left for essentially two reasons. One of them was I was getting just very burned out working on Syria and the Middle East at the time, given what was going on. And the second was we just wanted to get out of D.C. We were living in D.C. at the time. It's a very practical kind of family consideration. Um, wanted to get out of the city and, and come down to Texas. The writing really came out of that former point where I, I was in, in a I've been working on Syria for most of my, you know, professional life by that point. And the country was descending into civil war or had descended into civil war at that point. And, you know, I felt deeply for the people there. I had lived an experience and seen just the, the trauma of that event. And the writing, I think, in my own way, was a, a way to sort of process emotionally what I had seen. And so I started writing, not with the idea of penning a spy thriller by any stretch, but just as a way to kind of think through and, and feel through those experiences. And the book, years later, came out of that. But it, the, the, the start of that process of writing was really kind of thinking about what I had seen and experienced at CIA. So just and just one final question before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of your story. Presumably, there are complex and complicated processes that you need to go through so that the CIA are quite happy with what you've written. Hmm. That, that's right. So on my very last day at CIA, I was led into a room that would sort of recollect the vibes of a broom closet. And there was a woman there with a stack of paper. And, uh, you know, she told me, okay, you got to, you have to sign all of these. And I sort of stupidly said, can I have the copies when I leave, which was an <laughs> absurd question. And, uh, you know, she laughed and said, oh, no, honey, you can't take these. And so I still had to sign them. And I did. And one of the pieces of paper in there or several basically commit me for the remainder of my days on, on planet Earth to send any related content that I write, whether it be it a resume, an op-ed or a novel to the CIA for review. And so I had to send them the book. Um, I will say the publication review board is pretty fair. They're pretty fast, surprisingly. Um, and the, the best part though, is that they literally send the stuff back that you can't publish and it's been cut through with a black highlighter. So it looks, the whole document kind of looks like it's popped straight out of the 1960s, wow. but yes, you do have to, you know, that's, that's a, an obligation that I'll have on, on this book and every other book that I write. Now, obviously you can't Tell us the stuff that was taken out. Can you? Because that's you just told us. Why not? Can you say what was the kind of thing that you weren't allowed to say? Can you be general like that? Yeah, sure. So, I, I think most of it is related to very specific. Um, well, a couple of them were very specific vendors that the CIA uses for particular um, technologies. Not sensitive things, but I guess the existence of that contract would be 
or, or the, the, the vendor the CI uses would, would technically be classified. The other category would be like specific bureaucratic uh, names, like the, the name and the acronym of a particular part of the agency that does something. Now, interestingly enough, they tend to not object to a description of that piece of the bureaucracy in, you know, in, in detail, but the use of the name uh, they tend to object to. So that's, that's most of it. I, I was also pretty fastidious. I had about 300 source notes in there that I included to show them, you know, and this isn't for a nonfiction book. This is for the novel. 300 source notes to say, I got this thing here. It didn't come out of the classified part of my brain, which I also think helped to facilitate that process. Okay, all of which is a preamble to introducing us to Dam to Damascus Station. But it kind of, the, the fact, I mean, it's such a brilliant book, but it kind of helps to know all that, you see, David. You know, the fact yeah. that, so that we know instinctively, because for the reader, this feels authoritative and it feels as though you are in in these streets and you are in this country and because we now know the background we know that you are writing with that um, with that knowledge so, so introduce us to where we are with damascus station and sam joseph who's uh, one of our main characters here yeah well so it's a spy novel it's set in the early years of the syrian civil war i don't say it in the book but it's pretty much 2011 to 2013 so kind of the start of the uprising to the point where it begins to tip into civil war um the novel follows sam joseph who is a cia case officer meaning he's one of the one of the guys or, or girls who goes out and recruits human assets and he has recruited a syrian asset named Miriam, uh with whom he also breaks sort of one of the cardinal rules of espionage and they fall into a forbidden relationship um, they go back into Damascus. A lot of that happens in France. Uh, they go back into Damascus to hunt down the killer of another CIA case officer. And in doing that, really come face to face with a lot of the tension and the conflict and frankly, the passion in their own relationship, um, as well as into conflict with a pretty brutal uh, pair of Syrian brothers named um, Ali and Rustam uh, Hassan who are guarding a very dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. And in the case of Ali Hassan, uh, who's also a lot more than he initially appears. So this is a book that I think is, uh, it's obviously about espionage and the business of espionage. And there are some procedural aspects to that, that I was really keen to include. Um, but I also think it's a book about love, about loyalty. And, and in the midst of the Syrian war, what does it mean to be human in the middle of a really inhuman fight? And there is something about a civil war which is so extraordinarily destructive, which comes out, uh, obviously, in this story. Just as, I was going to use this as like a as an unfinally thing, but of all the procedural things that you introduce us to, the idea of uh, the CIA having a hot dog vending machine <laughs> struck me as utterly ludicrous. Like, who would who would buy a hot dog from a vending machine? And it turns out that that is true. That there is one. Obviously, the CIA did not complain about that particular <laughs> bit of it. No, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah. And I will say that the um, the number of hot dogs that I have consumed in my tenure will will remain a highly classified <laughs> oh, uh, fact what a treat. that I'll take I'll take to my grave <laughs> along with the rest of my secrets. That's right. <laughs> uh, David, I, I loved this book. And I, I uh, obviously you. we call this uh, podcast Books of the Year. Uh, this is certainly going to be uh, one of my books of the year. I know how ridiculous that sounds uh, as we're recording this in February, but but um, 
bluntly, every book I read this year is going to have to clear this bar because I think it was absolutely uh, amazing uh, piece of work. And I was trying to think this morning as I was coming in as to why I enjoyed it so much. And, and Simon's already touched on part of it. And it's the it's the authenticity, whether it's whether it's real or not, whether the things that you are describing in the book, the sort of tradecraft, whether that's real or not is less important than the fact that it feels real. It absolutely mm. feels like this is authentic. And I remember, um, so years ago, uh, uh, taking a uh, flying from, um, I think it was Heathrow to um, to Spain, and I was browsing through um, the bookshop, um, just looking for anything that was going to kill two and a half hours uh, on the flight. And I came across this book called um, Bluffer's Guide to Spying, which um, the very little has re remained with me from that book because it, it really wasn't very good. However, there is one thing, and that is... You can all basically this book said you can always tell a movie or a book that knows nothing about espionage if it includes one character saying to another character, "Were you followed?" Uh, because they said <laughs> that the, that is a question to which there is never going to be a you know the, it's a completely pointless question because if the person knows they've been followed, then they have. Uh, consciously led the enemy to your safe house. And if they don't know they've been followed, then they don't know they've been followed. There's no way of answering that question. It's a ridiculous thing to say. And so, and the number of times I've watched movies, like one of my favourite movies is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Were you followed is literally the first line and my heart sank when I saw it. So, so this is a roundabout way of saying, obviously in your book, no one ever says, were you followed? Um, but... Uh, That's not a question, is it? It's That's not a question. But so, so here is what I... I'm sort of struggling towards the point of is very early on in the book you describe something called an SRD um, and you don't explain what SRD stands for I think until about like 100 pages in and I really like that I like the fact that we were going to have to work out what an SRD is just through context and we do of course we do because we're we're reading the book and go, oh right and srd is like one of those uh weendy windy zigzag routes that uh an agent will take in order to spot whether they're being followed or not and it struck me that that was a conscious decision by you that you know if you're writing a book you would normally try and make sure that you're explaining things as you go along but right. you took a decision I'm not going to say what SRD stands for until way, way, way into the book. Was that a, was that a conscious thing by you, or was it was it a mistake, or or what? How did that work for you? Yeah, no, I um, I wanted us so to, to your point on surveillance detection routes. I wanted the book to start there because I wanted us to immediately get into a tense situation with with Sam. And I didn't want that situation to feel gummed up by a kind of authorial intrusion into the narrative in which we would really be outside of his mindset, right? His voice. And I wanted, so I, I wanted us to almost, the, the reader to almost feel like, I don't care, I, even if a reader is maybe a little confused about what that is precisely and why he's doing all of this. And there's little hints, you know, throughout that I think, hopefully help the reader kind of move along without being overly confused. I wanted the reader to to move forward based on kind of interest or intrigue in this character and what world does he inhabit? You know, am I interested in going into this world with him? And, you know, in, it very practically, you know, in, in the novels, anytime you stop to explain something or you stop to give what the acronym means, you know, it's... um. 
it creates some friction on the part of the reader. And, uh, and I wanted to avoid that as much as possible, for sure. So I, it, that was that was an intentional, that was intentional on my part. And just before Simon comes back in, was that was there ever a point where an editor was saying to you, actually, you're going to have to explain this bit, David, because I don't quite get it from the context? On that one, I don't believe so. But there has definitely been a back and forth. And I'm experiencing this in the editing process on my second book right now. There's a back and forth of finding that right balance between, um, you know, inviting the reader into this world and then explaining it to them, you know, sort of, do you, do you tell, do you tell them what this means or do you show them over time what, what it means and, and why? And, and that's been a, that's been a tricky balance to strike with some of the bureaucratic stuff for the agency lingo, because I am trying to be authentic to that world. And so if I can, I like to use, you know, the actual phrasing or the acronym, or, you know, we were talking earlier about things the agency takes out use the actual bureaucratic entity's name if I can, and I don't feel like it's irresponsible. All of that stuff, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a tension with putting that in and then, you know, not making it feel like the narrative is gummed up for the reader, so it slows them down. How did you feel about the whole editing process, David? Because there, obviously your book had two editors. One was the CIA who, <laughs> you know, put their lines through a whole bunch of stuff, and then you had an editor who was telling you what worked and what didn't work. Did you respond quite well to that or did you find yourself bristling occasionally i'm speaking as someone who's gone through this process and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and i just wondered what you know when you have other voices coming at you saying don't do that do this do you go oh okay yes good point or or not i have developed a pretty thick skin over the years for the the editorial process you know the the cia when i would write for president obama for example there were about 10 layers of review for those pieces. And we're talking about pieces that were a page or two long. So you have to get pretty, you know, you have to get accustomed pretty early in your career to somebody really taking the pen to, to what you've written. And perhaps by the end of the process with the CIA, you know, you don't even really recognize any of your initial words, which is kind of a gut punch. So when I came to writing fiction, you know, to discover that I only had a single editor at the uh, publishing house and then, the, you know, the CIA would kind of do their own review. It felt a little bit lighter. But mm. I will say that my editor, um, you know, he was pretty brutal with some of the early drafts of this thing. And and I did have to have, you know, I, 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 and I listened to him and I value his opinion because he's right like 99% of the time. So even if you kind of get that, I don't know if you experience this, Simon. Even if you get that kind of gut punch of, I wish you just loved the draft and we could move forward, <laughs> you know, uh, all of his comments really made the book better and brought the story and the characters to life. And, you know, that was worth the yeah. the gut punch of, of, you know, needing to do that work and hearing, you know, hearing that criticism. It was helpful to the overall process. Yeah, because here's the point. They know what they're talking yeah. about, yeah. you know. Right. <laughs> you're, you know, you're new to this. They're not. So trust, trust the expert. Um, there's a, there's a quote that comes very early in the story, David, and in fact, it's taken out and put on the back uh, cover and highlighted, uh, which is "Freedom starts at birth in Syria. It starts at death." And I wondered, was that your creation, or did you hear that? Is is that like a, a Syrian saying, or where does that come from? Because it's such a great line. So that's a a bit of an adaptation of a line from Miriam Haddad in the novel. She's sort of reflecting on, so it's a little bit of a tighter construct so that it would work for the, 
for the book jacket, but it's kind of this this feeling that she has. And I, I believe in the book, it's in her interior monologue, although I'd have to go back and check, that she's, you know, reflecting on this idea that, um, or actually she's in conversation with an oppositionist when they're talking about this. And uh, they're reflecting on this idea that they are sort of chained at birth, which I, th which I think is a construct or a sort of theme that runs through the novel with some of the Syrian characters. You see this with Ali Hassan as well. This idea that they live in a world where they don't have agency from very early on for a whole bunch of complicated reasons, you know, in, in the way that we would see it here, you know, in, in the West. And I think that point around how do people in a system, you know, find that agency or sort of negotiate a world where it, you know, the, the, the very just sort of ethics of individual relationships are sort of twisted by the the political realities of their system how do they deal with that how do you be a can you make good choices and be a good person in a system like that that's where that that quote comes from so mm -hmm. she's talking with an oppositionist about that and i didn't it's not particularly syrian you know it's not a it's not a syrian kind of phrase or anything like that but to me it felt very true to her character and the way she wrestles with that question in the book that it's something she would really be thinking about pretty constantly first time i shivered David, um, was where you, you have a line, you, you mentioned the fact that um, Sam Joseph is one of the things he's doing, he's, he's avenging a colleague. Mm -hmm. And there is a line that says, talking about a scream, and the scream, what kind was it? To which the answer is pain. They beat the crap out of her. Uh, I've tidied that up mm -hmm. slightly. But it occurred to me, and it may well be that just that you're a very good writer, but I, it hadn't re I don't think I'd ever analysed that there are different types of scream. You know, there are the pretend screams from horror movies and your kids, you know, running around in the garden. But the fact that a human being, would, a grown-up, would have different types of scream and that this was a scream that came from pain, I thought, I wonder if you, David, had had some kind of experience of hearing that. Yeah, um, I think both in my professional life, um, you know, having watched in particular a lot of the, you know, at the agency, we're looking at Syria and Iraq and what was happening there with Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then ISIS. Um, you know, you, you come across things that you see uh, and hear that are, you know, you kind of, I don't even think at the time I realized there was a distinction, you know, when I was at the agency, but, you know, as I was... Uh, writing, it, it was clear to me that, you know, when you hear someone yelling, um, there are different, even if there's no words, there's sort of a different message there. Um, and, you know, from a novelist standpoint, um, putting that aside for a second, from a novelist standpoint, you know, Sam is absolutely wrecked by his own decision which is the correct operational one but to leave and so you know he's going to look back at that he's going to be analyzing that sequence over and over and over and over again in his head um probably for the rest of his days and so it felt real to me that he would be thoughtful uh about what type of scream it was because he would have heard it over and over again in his mind 
There are, there are times in the book, um, David, where um, my instinct is anyone reading it is going to either, as Simon says, there's going to be times where, where you shiver, where you uh, have difficulty reading it because particularly during this, there's one torture scene which is really difficult to get through as it should be. Um, however, there are going to be other parts where you laugh out loud and here is the one where I laughed out loud. <laughs> and that is, and this, I'm, I'm going to guess that the thing I'm about to describe must be true because I don't see how anyone could have worked, could have made this up. But um, Sam, our main character, his his code name is Bert O Goldjagger, which is just that's just a great. <laughs> I mean, Bert O Goldjagger, and you have a character say that all these ridiculous code names were made up by an analyst who went through the London phone book <laughs> finding the most ridiculous names. Now, it's, uh, there, say, I'd never come across any old gold <laughs> old jaggers. Old gold <laughs> jaggers. Now, is that... I mean, obviously, I'm going to guess the gold jagger bit you, maybe you made up, but is it true that somebody way, way, way back in the CIA decided, code names, what we're going to do, crack open the London phone book and find some ridiculous English names? <laughs> so, um, I just I think one point of reference for listeners is that if it, inside CIA, if you're under any kind of cover and you're sending emails or cable traffic, you have what's called a funny name, which is first name, middle initial, which doesn't actually have a, any, it's just a, the initial, and then a last name, which will appear in all caps. Like I have it, like I rendered Berto Goldjagger in, in the book. Um, I have, I had, do not have any firsthand evidence of this, but I have heard from dozens of officers who served for 30 plus years that back when they were constructing this system, the original source material was a London phone directory from the 1950s <laughs> and that it was used to, it basically was fed into a computer and the computer fed out different kind of types of names. Now, interestingly enough, I believe until the nineties, it did not create female names. So there was a strange reality in which female case officers undercover, I, I've been told, I, I never saw this because it predates me, had male pseudonyms because, or funny names, because the, the phone book didn't spit out <laughs> any any female names. Um, but by the time I got there, that had been rectified. The phone book kind of lore was firmly established, though, as I note in the book, oftentimes were completely absurd. And I actually put in early drafts a few examples of actual names that, that they were real. And I had seen people with, e you know, emails and cables who had these names. And of course the, you know, the agency said, you gotta, you gotta take, you gotta take <laughs> this out. Um, so Bert Ogold Jagger is, uh, is to my knowledge, not, not a real uh, funny name. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a uh, bastardization of the funny name that I had when I was there. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's, I, I kind of changed it, uh, a little bit so that I could, I could use it and, and make it frankly sound more insane than the one that I had, which sounded relatively normal. So that's, I, that's I, I kind from. of thought it might've been some reference to Dick Van Dyke's character in Mary Poppins, <laughs> who is Bert, you know, cause you don't come across many Berts at all. Oh, <laughs> that's true. David, were, were there some, were there some sequences in this book that you found yourself excited to write because we're excited to read and the whole threat of exposure the terror of exposure which hangs over sam and miriam as they have this as you said um relationship which they def which he should definitely 
uh, not be having. But were there times when you were writing where you felt excited and nervous almost about the situations that you were putting them in? Yeah, absolutely. The the one that stands out, well, there's, I guess, a couple that stand out to me. The, f- the first one is when they're actually, when they're in France and they are, you know, giving in to this, this desire that they have for each other, um, which, you know, is a relatively common theme or trope in spy fiction. And for good reason, because it's creates so much energy when you, when you get it right um, to have all of that, you know, the tension that exists in an asset handler relationship and the romance together, you kind of don't have to worry about plot from there because there's so much chaos and energy already. You just let it go. So getting them into that position was really uh, fun in a lot of ways because it just created, it let the whole story move in a way that I could have never imagined. The second one was toward the end when they're finding themselves in this, you know, compromised situation in an interrogation room. That scene was actually the scene where before I even started writing anything, I had that scene in my head and I didn't know how it was going to get there, but I knew I wanted to. And so most of the book actually came out of an effort to get toward that scene. How do I generate that? And I wrote that scene. I still remember it. I wrote that scene in about four or five hours on a Saturday morning and it, it was hardly edited. Um, it just came out and then it was done. And it felt like this kind of wonderful capstone to this process of twisting through, okay, well, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get there? And you're setting all these, you know, all these tracks moving in this direction. And then it just boom came out. So that position was probably the most satisfying for me because it felt like a, an, an affirmation, I think of the characters that I'd been discovering and, and this summit of their personal and professional kind of interconnection and entwinement that it just it all unrolled from there that was deeply satisfying Uh, another strength of the book um for me david is um it's quite clearly not no one's going to pick up this book and be reminded of say a bond film or a jason bourne film because it's not it's not in that it's not in that area at all but that's what actually makes it far more interesting to me. I'm far more interested in the mundane than I am in the glamour. I love the fact mm. that, 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 and I, I, again, I'm going to guess this is true, that if you're flying as a CIA agent, if your flight is less than 13 hours, you can't go business. You've got to go economy. And he's like, anyone who's worked for a massive organisation knows, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. No, you can, no, no, no private jets for James Bond-style CIA. No, 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 you're going in the back right next to the toilets. Um, so so that's those little little aspects I loved. I want to talk to you about the, the thing that I mentioned very early on, the SRD. So in other words, these long routes that an agent will take to make to throw off a tail, to make sure that they know they're not being followed. Um, a number of times you have characters doing these these sort of walks and you talk about how they will go walking for 10 hours, 10 hours for a journey that if you were to walk it, you know, uh, as the crow flies, probably no longer than an hour. And I was thinking, I mean, obviously you're not wearing Fitbits, but your Fitbit would be through the roof. (laughs) 10 hours of walking. That's like when people sort of in this country do the sort of Land's End to John O'Groats walk, that's the amount of time you spend walking. No normal person (laughs) spends 10 hours walking. It's ridiculous. No, that's that's right, and I um, 
I got really fast because you know I, I was an analyst when I was when I was inside, and so I had kind of a I had a lot of interaction with with operations officers and worked very closely with them at Langley and in Damascus. But getting to write a character from that standpoint, it was fascinating to think of this very important part of their toolkit, the SDR. How do I get from point A to point B so I can meet the you know meet meet the agent? The agent doesn't die. No one's been followed. No one has to ask if they've if they've been followed. Like you're doing all of this sometimes for a one minute face to face, or you know, literally passing documents or a disc or whatever. Like you're not you're you're doing all of this work to find a very small gap in which you know and the asset knows that you're black. You know, you're free of surveillance and. To me, you know, getting to this point around, okay, my characters aren't Bond, you know, um, I got really fascinated as I was sketching this out with the idea that there is so much tension, some of it understated, but still deeply affecting to people, so much tension in the actual work of a CIA operations officer. There's so much human drama there. And the procedural kind of stuff, like these SDRs, you know, these are gut-wrenching experiences for case officers. You know, you, you mentioned 10, 12 hours, so it's physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. There's, you know, literally in some cases, the life of your asset could be on the line if you screw it up. And so there's just a tremendous amount there that, that from a narrative standpoint or a storytelling standpoint, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to the James Bond shoot 'em up stuff to get that level of drama and tension. You can, you know, I found, or at least I wanted to, you know, create that through maybe the more subtle means of the actual work of an operations officer. One of the reasons why this book is so vivid, David, I think is that we are living in a very real sense with the consequences of the events that you're talking about in the book, not the, the fictional once, but the civil war uh, in Syria, yeah. the chemical weapons which are used, which, of course, President Obama, who you were advising, said were his red lines that if they were used, then America would get involved. And I was talking actually at home with the kids about Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and, you know, saying there's, you know, there is a cost to getting involved and there is a cost to not getting involved. And the immigration and migration that happened as a result of the civil war in Syria, which flooded Europe, which caused a lot of the fear about immigration in this country, which led to the Brexit vote. You know, we, so we, it, the ripples that have come out of the events that you're describing, we are living with. The Ukrainians are living with, with, with that, because with, Russia is involved in your story as well. And it, so it just feels like, even though this is 10 years ago in your book, we're, li we're living with the the after effects now, day by day in 2023. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think you make the great point that there's a tendency, uh, definitely in the States um, here to think that these events in Syria were, they're remote, they don't matter. You know, it's, it's just a bunch of chaos and it's, it's either good guys versus bad guys, or it's too confusing to even understand. And so let's just push it aside. And, and I think that, you know, I, I was, I was hopeful in some ways that the book would just kind of 
humanize different aspects of the conflict to understand. Because one of the things that I have seen, particularly, you know, um, and this comes out of Russia a lot, or or folks that are are speaking on behalf of Russia, is that there's there is a tendency now, um, or or I guess really a push to try to win the narrative war over the over the sort of the peace, even though Syria is not at peace, but maybe to even just rework our understanding of the war going back in time to make this a contest simply between Assad and the terrorists. And there's elements of truth there. But, you know, what the effect of that narrative is, is to just steamroll and flatten any sense of individual experience, um, you know, and frankly, to minimize the sacrifice of a lot of people in Syria who went out and really tried to make this country better early on in the in the uprising. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I hope in some way that the the novel can bring individual story to life and show people that this place was, you know, they're actually humans <laughs> who live there and who were participating in the uprising and, and reacting to the the stressors of that time in, in different ways. But I think it's it's a well taken point that you know, Syria is not front page news anymore, but we kind of see a lot of the things that are going on today, you know, be it Russia's war in Ukraine, the way that truth and information have been distorted, um, you know, that sort of smashing of kind of individual experience at the foot of broader political narrative, all those things you see in Syria of a decade ago, and they're happening now. So I think it does provide a warning for us of what happens when we you know, ignore those things or allow them to sort of, you know, continue to move through our world without stopping them. Uh, just one final question from me, David. Obviously, vast majority of characters in the book are fictional. However, there are real people in in the book. Um, uh, President Assad uh, features in it uh, towards the end. Vladimir Putin, I think, even makes a very, very brief um, appearance. He does. But of those fictional characters... How many of those are are based on real people that 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 you have encountered? I'm not sure whether you're going to be able to tell us that really, but I'll ask it anyway. How many of them are sort of based on real people? Almost all of them are composites. So, you know, I took the kind of feel or experiences of a number of operations officers that I knew, and I kind of took different pieces of them to start to create Sam or to kind of usher Sam onto the page. And then as that was moving, you know, he kind of takes on a life of his own and becomes somewhat wholly distinct. And it was really the same process for all of the characters. I will say that Artemis Proctor, the fairly colorful CIA <laughs> chief of station in Damascus, um, is, is, is based off of someone that I, I knew in, in real life. And, and I am the fact that I'm still alive today probably suggests that she hasn't read the novel because if she saw herself in there, she might, frightening. She, oh might, my God. she might have, she might have come for me by now. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all, they're all based off of, you know, a couple people that I, I knew in that role at the agency and, and who I, I kind of took the, the building, you know, the building blocks of to, to create these characters to then just, you know, took on a life of their own. Uh, it, it's it's a, an essential and, in fact, maybe compulsory thing when you write the acknowledgments of the book uh, to thank your other half and, you know, and everyone who knows you and so on. However, I have to say, David, you say, and I quote, and finally, most importantly, all thanks and love to my wife, Abby. Okay, that's, that's fine. 
she worked out key plot lines and characters wow. and served throughout as the book's foremost champion. Foremost champion is a good book. But you have a, a you have another half who worked out key plot lines and characters. She she sounds extraordinary. She is extraordinary, and I wanted to I wanted to write that because, you know, she was a real partner in this whole process, and there were many many days. Our our kids were well, they're still young, but they they were even younger at the time when, you know, I'd come back from the writing day and we'd sit down and we'd have a you know gin and tonic out in the out on the porch and the kids are running around and we just talk through the book talk through how, you know the the shape of different characters talk through the plot and she was uh, you know she she helped immensely in in this entire process and so i wanted to make sure that that i mentioned that um because she's she's a real partner to me so really you should say writing david and abby Mc McCloskey, that's what it should say yeah. uh, 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 on the front. Um, there's going to be more with David in our Q&A, which you can get uh, in the next couple of days. But, um, David, we look forward to your next book, which obviously you're going through the editorial process uh, with at the moment and enjoying that editorial process uh, so much. <laughs> exactly. Damascus Station is out in paperback. David McCloskey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.